I would imagine most of us at some point or another have seen a one-man band. Sometimes it's as simple as a guitarist with a harmonica strapped around his neck so that he can accompany himself. Other people incorporate instruments that they play with their feet or multiple wind instruments they play with their mouth. Some people strap large bass drums to their back or play cymbals or whatever it might be. As a matter of fact, one of the most famous one-man bands was Jesse Fuller from right here in nearby Jonesboro, Georgia. He was known for playing a 12-string guitar, a harmonica, a kazoo, a hi-hat cymbal, and what he called a footdella all at the same time. Footdella was a sort of a, a bass percussion foot pedal. In addition, Jesse Fuller would tap dance as he sang, and I played, I should say, and and uh, performed his, his music and even interspersed it with funny jokes and anecdotes. Sure, it was all quite entertaining to watch. But no one, I don't think, would really expect or go to Jesse Fuller or any other one-man band to perform a Beethoven symphony. No one would, would choose a, a single actor, no matter how great they are, and expect them to put on a masterpiece like one of Shakespeare's tragedies in any worthwhile form. That's because we understand the highest levels of beauty and majesty are always demonstrated in complexity and variety and layers and layers of beauty. All that provides a great analogy for the church and particularly Paul's message for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because he's writing to us about the issue of unity in the church. And he's really demonstrating to us in one of the most significant passages on the church that you'll find anywhere in scripture, he's really demonstrating to us the beauty and the majesty of God's design for unity by diversity within the body of Christ. He speaks to us about this issue in the most unexpected kind of ways because he ends up stressing that the unity that God has designed for the church is accomplished. The unity that God has, has a desire for us to put on display is accomplished by this multiplicity, this diversity that he's built into who we are. For a lot of people, that's a contradiction because their understanding of unity is shallow. It is superficial. It is immature. We would say it's naive. We would even say sometimes it's crude, simplistic. For some people, they're so frustrated by disunity within the body of Christ that their answer is to separate from the corporate gathering of the church altogether. That is to say, they just make the decision they're going to be a church, a spiritual entity unto themselves. They don't attend. They sort of have home church or they sort of worship by themselves, they have some internet worship experience or whatever it might be, believing that they will be able to supply all of their needed resources from their own means. For other people, this idea of unity and the frustration in seeking it out causes them to bounce from one church to the next, looking for a place that matches all of their personal preferences. Because their idea of unity within the body of Christ is nothing more than worldly uniformity masquerading under the banner of Christianity. That is to say, people think of unity, or when they think of unity, they think of uniformity. They think of 
a bunch of people who are supposed to be just like them, supposed to have their own preferences and supposed to seek after uh, their own interests, the, the interest of, of you, that is. They're, they're supposed to share all those things in common. As a matter of fact, this was codified or formalized probably about 20 years ago in, in a book called The Purpose Driven Church, where, uh, where author Rick Warren uh, proposed the homogeneous principle, where he says that when you reach a point where the pastor looks like all the people in the pew and they all look like one another, then your church is poised for explosive growth. And people latched onto this and began to build entire philosophies of ministry around that principle, around the principle of mere uniformity for the purpose of size, for the purpose of prominence. Everyone sharing the same preferences, everyone having the same interest, everyone favoring the same things. That's not unity, though. That has nothing more than the natural inclination that we all have in our flesh to surround ourselves with people who prefer the same things that we prefer, who do things the same way that we do things, who approach, who, who approach situations with the same, you might say, preferences, the same interest. It is merely another form of narcissism and self-centered and self-centeredness that masquerades as Christianity. There's really nothing supernatural about it at all. There's nothing that demonstrates the power of God at all. There's nothing that demonstrates the glory of God at all in something like that. It is the same thing the world seeks out all the time in all of its various clubs and fraternities and fellowships and guilds and leagues and associations. For all of the talk that the world gives about tolerance and inclusiveness and understanding, if you just turn on the news each day, you see it's being torn apart all the time by prejudice, by discrimination, by partiality and by favoritism. All of it a byproduct of human depravity. Well, what Paul has to describe for us in this chapter is something far different than all that. He's writing to us about the issue of unity, but he's writing about it through the lens of the supernatural work of God that he desires to to manifest in every local congregation, in every body of Christ. He talks about diversity, but when he does it, he really is talking about the, the, the wisdom of God demonstrated in such a way that he uses very different kinds of people in very different kinds of ways and all fulfilling his, his unified purpose through the church. It's a chapter about diversity and social standing, diversity and racial makeup, but mostly diversity and giftedness. As a matter of fact, this is, you remember what is spawning this whole conversation was a question about spiritual gifts. And these spiritual gifts had become a source of contention, one of many in the Corinthian church. You remember all the way back in chapter 1, Paul started to deal with the issue of disunity, the issue of divisiveness in the church. He had to address it again and again as you move through the book. He ultimately tells them in chapter 3, 
verse 1, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, for you are still of the flesh. For where there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only or merely in a human way? So here was a church that was marked by strife, marked by jealousy, marked by division, marked by disunity. And Paul credits all of that to a worldly way of thinking, to a fleshly way of thinking. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's manifesting itself in these these displays of self-centeredness in the way they thought about spiritual gifts. James chapter 3 speaks about this. It says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I mean, that's a description of the Corinthian church. Under the facade of unity or whatever they might have thought of as unity, there was disorder on one hand and there was vile practices being tolerated on the other. In order to maintain some semblance of unity, these people had even reached the point where they were tolerating incest within their church. Vile practices, bitterness, jealousy, all of these things flourishing within the body of Christ and none of them demonstrating what God really intends to put on display in regard to unity. Well, while the church that Paul writes to is being torn apart by this discord and division, Paul lays down in this chapter the most fundamental principles of unity that every church must embrace, must understand if they ever want to demonstrate to the world the power of God through their local congregation. One, uh, I should say, principles that every believer must understand if they desire to experience the kind of unity, the kind of bliss in fellowship with one another that God intends for every church. Specifically, Paul lays out four principles that create and maintain unity within the body of Christ. And he does it all through the analogy of of a body. Let me just read these verses for you, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, Slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If we all were a single member, where would the body be? But as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are are indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think less honor, uh, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Four principles that Paul gives us here that lay out or or, or create, I should say, unity within the body, create and maintain unity. And it will take us a few weeks to get through them all. But we take note in verse 12, first of all, about our connection in Christ, our connection in Christ. Paul says, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body throw many are one body, so it is with Christ. Now, if you just think about it for a moment, you would expect Paul to say, so it is with the church. There are many members and there's one body and so it is with the church, but that's not what he says. He says, so it is with Christ because he's He's presenting to us the church as the manifestation of Christ on the earth. He's picturing the entire church literally as a part of Christ himself. And as a matter of fact, as you go through the New Testament, this is one of the most common and one of the most important pictures of the church that you'll have anywhere. In fact, when Paul himself was an unbeliever, You may remember he was engaged in persecuting the church as a Jewish rabbi or rabbi in training. And one day on the road to Damascus, he was confronted by Christ himself. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is the way God views the church. This is the way he presents the church in scripture. He presents the church as his own body as himself manifest on the earth. This becomes one of the most frequent (coughs) metaphors throughout Paul's own writing about about the church. Now this analogy, this metaphor communicates a number of important truths for us. First of all, we would say that it, it, It communicates the issue of life, or we might say the source of life that flows throughout the body. That is to say, when we speak about the the church as the body of Christ, what we're saying is that Jesus Christ is living through you and me and every believer on the face of the earth. To speak of the church as the body of Christ is to speak about the same life existing in all of the parts. We can't say that there's one kind of life or that there's one life in the fingers and there's one life in the foot and there's one life in the torso. We don't think about life in that sense. When we think about a body, we think about one unified life. And this is exactly what you see presented in Scripture. In fact, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. This is the way Paul presents it there. (coughs) Down in verse 22, he says, or he teaches us, that God gave Christ as the head over all things to the church, which is 
his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the idea of the body of Christ is all right there. Christ is the fullness and he's the one who fills all in all. That is to say that Christ is the head over all things. He is the supreme one. He's the powerful one. He's the one who reigns and rules. He's the one who's exalted. If you just read the rest of Ephesians chapter 1, you see that clearly displayed. He's the one who's exalted above all principalities and powers and all that makes up this, this world and all of the heavens. Here he is, the supreme and the powerful one. And he says to us that God gave Christ to the church as a head so that the fullness of all that power, the fullness of all that authority, the fullness of all He is can be manifested through each of us, each and every believer day by day. His life is flowing through us. This is the concept of the body. The life of Christ working itself out through every believer. Some, some theologians call this the mystical union of Christ and the church. That's because we can't fully explain it. It's not something that you can necessarily map out or chart out. But Paul even mentions it later on. If you go to Ephesians chapter 5, he calls it a mystery. In fact, he draws a connection in verse 31 of Ephesians 5 between the, the unity that a man has with a woman and the unity that we have with Christ. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So there's some sort of mystical union that takes place between us and Christ, some sort of mystical connection. And Paul says there's a parallel between the connection that happens with a husband and a wife where the two become one flesh. Well, when we come into the church, when we're when we become a part of the church, we are united to Christ in some mysterious way, some un, unspeakable way, so that His life now is, is flowing through us and he, and he is the all in all. So when we speak about the body of Christ, we're not just speaking about organization. We're not speaking about it as a body such as a legislative body or some other kind of organization. We're speaking about an organic reality. <laughs> Paul's saying that the life of Christ flows through each of us. This intimate, unique connection that every believer has with the body. Secondly, when Paul uses this analogy or metaphor of a body, he's not only speaking about the source of life, but he's also speaking about its singular glory. That is to say, when we speak about ourselves being the body, we're always united to the head, and the head is always supreme. And because of that, we are always giving ourselves over to its glory. Paul, by the way, had already kind of hinted at this earlier in the book of Corinthians when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he sort of mixes all this together. He's talking to them about joining themselves individually to harlots, and he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So there he brings up this issue of our intimate connection with Christ. That's the way he begins the discussion. And then later on in that chapter, he concludes saying, therefore, you are not your own. 
You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Can't, can't go through that entire section, but Paul's point is this. Look, you don't belong to yourself. You no longer are your own. You are a member of Christ. You now belong to Him. He has purchased you. He has bought you. And because of that, your goal, your purpose, your duty is to glorify Him. That's your guiding principle. When you're a part of the body of Christ, that's why you exist. This is the way Paul presents it over in Colossians chapter 1. If you have your your Bibles there in Ephesians, you can flip over just a couple of books to Colossians 1 where he presents Christ in verse 18. He says, He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So this is a part of the concept of the body as well, that that we, existing as the body of Christ, exist so that Christ can be preeminent, so that he can be exalted, so that he can be first in everything. This had become a problem in the Colossian church because there were certain people who had crept in who were seeking to replace that, that place of Christ. They were seeking to, to uh, we would say, uh, dislodge Christ from that place of preeminence and replace that with something else. Replace it with various experiences, human traditions, philosophies of the world, elemental spirits of the world, all those things which he outlines in verse 8 of chapter 2, all of those things were trying to, were, were, were vying for supremacy in the church rather than Christ himself. So when you come to verse 19 of chapter 2, Paul urges us to hold fast to the head the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So he says that Christ here as the head is the preeminent one, and he's the one who is always at the top. He's the one who's always at the front. He's the one who's always the supreme one, and we are to hold fast to him, knowing that it is by him that all the growth comes. Well, that would lead to a third point, a third, uh, I guess you could say, implication of this analogy, this metaphor, when we speak about the church as the body of Christ. And that is to say that we have a unified will. To speak of the body of Christ is to say that we are acting in unity under the will and direction of Christ. Now, when we say that, we don't say a unified will in the sense that we all, we all adopt any single person's will. Another way to say that is to say that we have a unified will doesn't mean that we suddenly now all share the same preferences and the same individual interest. We're not all going to like the same color or, or prefer the same drink or want the same house or drive the same car or pursue the same career. We're not all going to uh, desire the same kind of, of uh, things in life. When we say the church is now unified under the, the, an in, a, a single will, what we're talking about is the will of Christ, the mind of Christ, the purpose of Christ. And honestly, what defines the purpose and the mind of Christ is the setting aside of personal interests. 
fact, this is what Philippians tells us, right? Over in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So here you're saying this is, this is the way that we are to dress ourselves. This is the way we're to prepare ourselves with the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ was a mind who set aside his own personal interest. See, when we say we're the body of Christ, when we say that we, we're all connected to him through that, what we're saying is that it's his life that's flowing through us. What we're saying is, that we all exist for His glory. And what we're saying is that we all want to live out His mind. We all want His thinking to be flowing through us. In fact, uh, back up a few verses in Philippians if you're there. And Paul says uh, there in verse 27 of chapter 1, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So here he speaks about them having one mind, one spirit, one purpose, striving all together, and then he moves into chapter 2 and defines that mind. That mind is consistently setting aside its own interest, its own purposes. This is instructive to us because even the Apostle Paul, he had begun his book of Corinthians calling the church to this same standard. He says in chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is what God's desire is for each of us, is that every one of us be united in the body of Christ with the mind of Christ. And it's, this, is, this is the thing that produces the unity among us. Now we could emphasize that from one more passage over in Ephesians chapter 4, another of the most significant passages in all the Bible detailing how the body of Christ is supposed to function. Ephesians 4 lays out in verses 11 through 16 a a philosophy of ministry, a philosophy of life within the church that is so rudimentary and so uh, important and also so clear, it still amazes me when people fail to grasp what Paul's saying here. When they fail to live by this, and yet so many people do. Paul says there that God has given to the church various leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers. He's given them, verse 12 says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. That's a powerful picture of the way God has defined or designed, I should say, the, the, the body to function. He gives leaders, first of all, to equip. To equip the saints. And by the way, if you're going to do that, there's only one tool by which you can do it. It's the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3 says, All scriptures breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if you're in the role of equipping, if you want people to be thoroughly equipped for every good work, there's only one instrument, there's only one tool that you have to accomplish that purpose, and that is the Word of God. And so we equip by teaching, we equip by preaching, we equip by dispensing the Word of God in all of its various forms, whether it's from a pulpit, whether it's from a counseling office, whether it's from a small community group, whether it's from a training class, whatever it might be, we're constantly equipping with this instrument. And then as leaders equip... The church then, by God's design, begins to function within all these capacities by which they're equipped or in which they're equipped. They begin to minister to one another. They begin to do, as Paul says, the work of the ministry. To the end that the ministry, or I should say the church, is built up. The body of Christ, he says at the end of verse 13, is built up. And all of this produces some precious fruits. All of this produces some some powerful results. If you have leaders who are committed to equipping with the right instrument, and you have people who are committed to embracing the work of the ministry by that equipping, what you have, beginning in verse 13 and flowing all the way down through verse 15, are these powerful fruits. You have unity of faith. You have knowledge of Christ. You have spiritual maturity. You have sound doctrine. You have stability within the body. You have authentic, loving testimony. I mean, those are all the things he says are the fruits of this philosophy of ministry. He's talking about the spiritual development that comes when a church gives itself to this. All of this edification creates this virtuous cycle of growth. Unity of the faith. By the way, he's not talking about a common experience of faith. It's not unity of, of, our, of our personal faith. It's unity of the faith. It has a definite pronoun there. Uh, talking about the body of truth. Same, by the way, that he uses in Ephesians 4, 5 when he talks about there being one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's not saying that we all experience faith in the same way, but he's saying there's one faith in the sense of one body of doctrine that we all stand under and the one one body of faith that we all defend. One common belief. So he says that the, the byproduct of all this teaching is one common faith, one common doctrine of the church and and in addition to that 
He says there's a common knowledge of Christ. Epigenosis is the word not just for knowing some biblical truth, but knowing something intimately. He says we all are united in the knowledge of the Son of God. This is where Paul moves to more the experiential aspect of our Christian life. He's saying we all, we all are intimately connected to Christ with this, with this experiential knowledge of Him. An intimate connection with Him. The result of all this, he says in verse 14, is that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by waves and every wind of doctrine and craftiness and deceitful scheming. We're no longer unstable, we would say, spiritually. We're no longer seeing stumbling and tripping and and division that comes from all these doctrinal disorders. And then, at the end of all this, ultimately... He says in verse 15, we speak the truth in love as we're growing up in every way into him who's the head. That is the church results in a powerful, loving testimony. That's God's design for the body of Christ. That we all are filled with his thinking. We all are filled with his mind. We think his thoughts after him. That his cross And His righteousness begin to govern all that we do. That the mind of Christ richly dwell within us. That He fills all in all. So this is what Paul's talking about back over in Ephesians chapter 12. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is what he's talking about. When he speaks about the unity of the church, he begins with this image, this powerful image of the body of Christ. And he's talking about the life of Christ flowing through us. He's talking about the preeminence of Christ's glory at the forefront of all of our minds. He's talking about the mind of Christ being disseminated by the word of Christ into all of our hearts and minds so that we're ministering in the love of Christ to one another and building each other up in love. That's the first truth. This connection that we have in the body of Christ, this connection to Christ. But I want you to notice quickly a second principle of unity that he lays out here. And that is the communion that we have through the Spirit. Not only are we united in this mystical union with Christ. But Paul says in verse 13. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks. Slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one Spirit. Paul's here not talking just simply about giftedness, but he's talking about all of the things that would naturally divide people. He's talking about racial differences like Jews and Greeks. He's talking about social differences like slaves or free people, the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the Asian, whatever it might be. He's saying all these differences that that sort of uh, mark out the world... All of them are done away with by the single work of the Spirit. Or we would say the single work of Christ by the Spirit. Because what he says here is that God creates a supernatural unity within the church by a common experience of the Holy Spirit. We are all baptized into the body of Christ with the Holy Spirit. That word baptized, by the way, is just 
uh, obviously it's, uh, its fundamental meaning is to be immersed. But it also has the idea of being identified. It has the idea of being identified with something. This is the way Paul used it back in chapter 10. Remember whenever he says that, that Israel was baptized into Moses. That is to say when they came out of Egypt, they, they left their identity as a slave people. And they took on the new identity within the old covenant as the people of God under that covenant. They were baptized into Moses. So when he says here that we were all baptized into the body by this one spirit, what he's saying is is that we were all plunged and identified in the body by this one spirit. The moment each believer places his faith in Christ, he is immediately and completely made a full-fledged member of the body, completely immersed in it by the working of the spirit. Every believer no matter what their background, no matter what their standing in the world, no matter what their race, no matter what their their prominence, whatever it is, every believer by virtue of the Spirit are completely and wholly identified with the body of Christ on the same level. Particularly here of, of the terminology... A phrase in most translations, the baptism uh, uh, in the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit has led a number of people to speak of a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you may hear it sometimes spoken of as a baptism of the Holy Spirit with the speaking in tongues. That's the old phrase that's used in the Pentecostal circles. People speak of this as some event that happens subsequently to your salvation. So you come to know Christ at some point in your life, and then you wait, and you wait, and at some later point you are baptized by the Holy Spirit, or you receive, they would often say, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that is not what Paul is saying here, either grammatically, or we would say even contextually. What Paul says here, your baptism, your baptism is, is by one spirit or with one spirit. In heni numity. You can translate it by or with. The word, the particle in is translated both ways. But if you just take note of the New Testament, every time the, the, the Bible pairs up the idea of spirit and baptism, it's always the work of Christ who is baptizing us with the spirit. You, for example, go back to Luke chapter 3 and John John the Baptist says that there's one who's coming who's mightier than I and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, you, you go into the book of Acts, and this is the same sort of thing that you see. All people were baptized with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This is the common work that we see, the work of Christ in baptizing people with the Spirit. And what we read as we go through the Scripture is that this is the work that is done at the moment of belief for every person. They are, they are we would say, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we would say, is poured out 
on them and in them. The Holy Spirit regenerates them. The Holy Spirit fills them. The Holy Spirit goes on to sanctify them. So much so that Paul can say that he who doesn't have the Spirit does not belong to Christ. Romans 8 verse 9. So, so if you just look at the context of the New Testament, what Paul's talking about here is a work of Christ in baptizing every believer with the Spirit. And you realize that what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that this is the thing which unifies every single believer. Jew, Greek, slave, free, it doesn't matter. Every single believer, every one of them, he says, is made to drink of the same Spirit. Now that concept in itself works against that notion that somehow there's a subsequent work of the Spirit, right? And the whole idea of a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happens to some believers, but hasn't happened to other, others, violates the very intent of this passage. And yet this is the only place in the Scripture where you will find language that people sometimes try to co-opt for that doctrine, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. What Paul's talking about here is how Christ completely immerses every believer and indwells every believer and gives to us every spiritual resource, every one of us. He puts His very self inside of us. And He does it, as John 3.34 says, He gives the Spirit without measure. Every believer receives the full dose of the Holy Spirit. The complete work of the Holy Spirit. He is immersed. He drinks. He is, as as one commentator says, he's flooded by the Holy Spirit. God's put everything he has into us. Every one of us. So that what's lacking is our full obedience. What's lacking might be our full trust. What's lacking might be a full submission, or we would say in some cases even a full understanding. But it's not a full indwelling. That's not what we're lacking. There is no second-class Christian. There is no tiered system. There is no second work that you have to wait on in order to be fully sanctified and fully set apart for God's use. So these are the unifying truths. These are the unifying factors, those unifying elements that Paul lays out for us here. This this connection that we have with Christ and this communion that we all have in the Spirit, which builds into us a unity that's not something we create. It's something that's created by God, something that's there, that we need to embrace and we need to understand so that we can experience the full unity God has for us. Why don't you stand together? We'll be dismissed. We'll have to come back next week and deal with the other two principles that Paul lays out for us in this passage. Father, we're grateful this morning for the Word and thankful for, for the doctrine of the church. Thankful that you give it to us with clarity. You give it to us so that we can trust and believe. You give it to us as a gift of your grace. 
Lord, we pray that, you, we, that we would demonstrate the unity that you've designed for the church in every way. Pray that we would function as a unified body, that we would be united under the will of Christ, that we would be seeking the singular glory of his name. Lord, we trust that you can do that because you've given us all the same resources, the same spirit, the same work that's working in us by your power and for the sake of your name in which we pray. Amen.